The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
the gavel. Welcome to the December 6th, 2022 regular meeting of the Ann Arbor Planning Commission. For detailed information on meeting procedures, please review the full printed meeting agenda provided. Mr. Leonard, will you call the roll, please? Commissioner Kib Randall. Commissioner Abrams. Here. Commissioner Sove. Here. Commissioner Mills. Here. Commissioner Hammerschmidt. Here. Commissioner Dish. Here. Commissioner Lee. Here. Commissioner Clark. Commissioner Weich. Here. You have seven members present. As a reminder to the commission, it takes six affirmative votes to advance any petition. Thank you. Item three, the approval of the agenda. May I have a motion to approve the agenda? Moved by Commissioner Mills, seconded by Commissioner Dish. Is there any discussion on the agenda? Yeah, I would like to propose a removal of the minutes. Those were delivered to you late. I doubt commissioners had much time to review those, so I would recommend postponing those to the next meeting. So do, I, do we vote to approve that amendment to the agenda? Um, you can vote on the, the agenda as amended with that change. Okay. So a vote on the, amend, on the agenda as amended. All those in favor, please say aye or raise your hand. Any opposed? The motion carries. So we'll skip item four, which is approval of the minutes from the previous meeting, and move on to item five, reports from city administration, city council, planning manager, planning commission officers and committees, and written communications. We'll begin with council member Dish. Do you have any report? I do. You will be interested to know that council voted last night to send, uh, to, uh, to direct planning commission to look at a couple of aspects of TC1 before we move on to the new, uh, to, the, to the subsequent corridor rezonings. And that would be a limited number of auto-centric uses like rental cars and auto repair being possibly special exception uses. Not permitted, but special exception. If I'm getting this wrong. Oh, you can't hear me, I'm so sorry. Uh, so limited number of auto-centric uses being special exception. And then the other thing would be um, making a precisely targeted tweak to the UDC in order to ensure that where there is not adequate right-of-way to install pedestrian cyclist amenities like bus shelters, benches, bike hoops, et cetera, um, a building up to the curb or zero, or excuse me, building up to the sidewalk or zero foot setback not be permitted. And a larger setback to be specified be required. I can't remember anything else that we did of interest, but that's not to say that there wasn't anything. Thank you. Mr. Leonard, do you have anything to add to that or report? Uh, related. Uh, there's, since there seems, I think there's a lot of interest in the TC1 district, generally we'd like to move pretty quickly with that, so we anticipate kicking off that discussion with the Planning Commission at the working session next week. Thank you. Do you have anything additional to report? Nope. Great, thanks. Do any other commissioner officers or committee liaisons have anything to report? Okay. Then we'll move on to, oh, and we received a lot of communications this week. Um, some are printed here and some in our uh, packet. So I hope you have time to read those. We'll move on to item number six, public comment. This is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes about an issue that is not listed as a public hearing on the agenda. 
we will first call on individuals present to address the commission and then remote participants. To speak during this public hearing remotely, press star nine if listening by phone or use the raise hand feature if viewing through the web link. For phone access, call 877-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 977-6634-1226. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand using the last three digits of your phone number or by name if available for those accessing through the web link. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you more clearly. For either method of participation, please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. Is there anyone present who would like to speak at this time? You're welcome to approach the podium, thanks. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, Richard Kligman. 18036 Ridgeview Drive, Northville, Michigan, 48168. And um, <clears throat> I'm a residential builder and remodeler in southeastern Michigan. In addition to my day job, I'm also incoming 2023 uh, volunteer president for the Home Builders Association of Michigan. And our organization represents some 5,000 builders, remodelers, subcontractors, and others providing housing related uh, services to our state citizens. Um, so I'm not here to speak on the question of whether electrification requirement as it's being proposed is, uh, will truly achieve the city's climate uh, protection goals. And there are others here I'm, I'm sure What's we will certainly want to focus on that. Well, are you speaking to the item on the agenda? This is a time for comment on items not on the agenda. Oh, I apologize. I'm sorry, Brett. No worries. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, when you said you weren't going to speak on it, then I thought you were going to speak on something else. <laughs> sorry. That will come soon on the agenda. Thank you. Is there anybody else present who would like to speak on an item not on the agenda? Mr. Leonard, is there anybody that you see remotely? We do. Caller with the phone number ending with 917. Press star 6 to unmute your phone, and you have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Good evening. Casey Klein, 3304 North Timberwood Drive, Traverse City, Michigan, 49686. I would like to address the project that was discussed during the last planning commission meeting on the 15th regarding the proposed new development at 530 North Division Street, which would include the removal of a 3,000 square foot structure and replaced with an 8,000 square foot LEED certified structure. One of the responsibilities of the city is to set and maintain standards, and this project falls well outside of those current standards. When that is allowed to happen, it sets a precedent. If the city's intent is to start changing this neighborhood, then those changes should be a part of a larger master plan and approved by the citizens, not piecemeal together as will happen if this proposal moves forward without substantial modifications. During the planning meeting, I heard one of the commissioners ask about adding a maximum setback and another about adding restrictions for maximum height and that only added to my concern that there is no clear or set plan moving forward in this neighborhood. I believe that the proposed construction should be at a minimum contained to the existing footprint, if not total size, scale, and exterior finishes in order to maintain the characteristics of this neighborhood. The only thing to be gained by building a structure as large as what is proposed is to make money. And that is not the city's responsibility to ensure that that happens. 
New construction within the existing footprint would be a win-win in my eyes, as it would maintain the current look and feel of the neighborhood and could still achieve the goals of energy efficiency and could also be designed for more dense occupancy, as is also a goal for the city. Even when a project can check all of the boxes, it does not always mean it is the right thing to do. The old fourth ward was not developed as an energy saving district, but a historic one. And future planning for this area should take that into consideration. During the planning commission meeting, I heard Mr. Selby acknowledge the history of the neighborhood and noted the no Native American presence in this area. If the proposal moves forward without substantial modification to the footprint specifically, Please consider requiring an archaeological survey of the site prior to development. And I understand it is unorthodox for commission decisions to um, sort of be reevaluated after it was already unanimously passed. I wish I had had a chance to speak at the last commission meeting, but I appreciate you hearing my comments tonight. Thank you. Thank you. No other speakers have indicated a desire to address the commission at this time. Thank you. We'll now move on to item seven, public hearings scheduled for the next business meeting. No new public hearings scheduled for the next business meeting. Thanks. And we're now on to item 8A. So this is part of unfinished business. The first item, 8A, is the amendment to Chapter 55, Unified Development Code, UDC, Sections 5.16.60, Accessory Uses and Structures, Personal Scale Solar Energy System to remove restrictions for installation of solar energy installations in single and two-family zoning districts, and the staff recommendation is approval. Yes. Uh, so this is... Uh, unfinished business from the November 15th meeting. Um, you will recall that there were two proposed ordinance amendments presented to the Planning Commission at that time. One was uh, this, which is proposed modifications to the city's personal scale solar energy systems requirements. And the second was an ordinance regarding electrification. Uh, at the desire of the Planning Commission, those two have been split. So at um, for this agenda item is only the former. Um, the ordinance remains unchanged from the presentation on the 15th. Um, as a reminder, uh, personal scale solar energy systems are regulated largely as accessory structures uh, in the Unified Development Code. However, uh, amendments from circa 2017 added some additional restrictions to those solar energy systems in that it prohibited their placement in front yards regardless of any space that would be outside of a required minimum front setback. That is where a front yard would exceed the dimension of the minimum required front setback. Also required some screening requirements um, as well. And so uh, given the city's uh, goals identified in the 2013 sustainability framework to improve access and to increase the use of renewable energy um, by our community, also as a means of reducing greenhouse gases, uh, fortified by recent conversations at the city and declaring a climate emergency and goals around carbon neutrality, um, the proposed amendments before you would um, relax uh, standards of solar energy systems rather than adding them uh, from other accessory structures uh, in the ordinance. Specifically, it would allow ground-mounted solar energy systems in the front yard and the front yard setback. 
Um, so that would provide a greater degree of flexibility than other accessory structures. However, they would not be permissible closer than 10 feet to the public right of way. Um, the proposed changes would, would also accept or exempt ground-mounted solar systems from the maximum coverage of the rear yard setback requirements that other accessory structures are ob obligated to follow being a coverage of 35% of that area. So they would be exempt from that calculation. Um, these would be, um, I think these are, um, from a staff perspective, these are modest changes that would provide uh, greater flexibility depending on the unique characteristics of houses and homes across the community to realize solar energy that might not be able to now given um, specific site um, obstacles or arrangement and the like. And um, with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions now or at the conclusion or during deliberation. Thank you. We'll now move on to the public hearing. This is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes about the proposal to amend Chapter 55 regarding personal scale solar energy systems. We'll first call on individuals present to address the commission, then remote participants. To speak during this public hearing remotely, press star nine if listening by phone or use the raise hand feature if viewing through the web link. For phone access, call 877-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 977-6634-1226. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand using the last three digits of your phone number or by name if available for those accessing through the web link. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute television or background sounds so that we may hear you more clearly. For either method of participation, please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. Is there anyone present that would like to speak at this time regarding the solar and personal scale solar energy systems? Thank you, Commissioner Rayburn. My name is Ken Garber. I live at 28 Haverhill Court. And we need to remove as many restrictions on home solar as possible. Um, these changes are long overdue. So very simply, I urge you to um, approve these amendments tonight. Um, and um, I'm not sure if they need to go on to city council, but in either event, please vote yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Is there anybody else present who would like to speak? Mr. Leonard, is there anybody remotely? Yes, yes there is. Virginia Rogers, you can unmute. Using, you've unmuted. You have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Okay, thank you. Um, I would like to speak on this topic as well as the next. Can I combine my comments into one? Um, I think it probably is better to speak about them separately. Okay, then I'll wait and uh, speak at the second one. Okay. Thanks. But, but what? What's that? You are allowed to speak twice. So if you wanted to speak for in support or not in support of solar energy systems, you could do that now. Uh, I would like to say that I am totally in support of the uh, reducing of restrictions to install Solar, I think that to meet our greenhouse gas emission goals, um, we need to make it as easy as possible to um, build out renewable energy. So I'm strongly in support. 
Thank you. Thanks. Adam Jaskevich, you have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Hi, um, Adam Jaskevich in the fourth ward on Las Vegas Drive. And I would just like to echo the previous two speakers um, in um, wholehearted support of this change. I think it's, it's great to reduce restrictions. Um, solar in particular is um, extremely reliant on specific placement um, on a lot, right? So if you don't have, you know, good solar access on your roof, uh, maybe you have better solar access in your backyard or in your front yard or, or whatever, and um, it's, it, you, you really need to put it in the right place in order to have the maximum efficiency from it. Um, and um, sometimes it just doesn't work to put it on your roof. Um, and, and I think this was kind of a mistake when council banned this in the past, and I'm really glad to see this coming forward. I'm glad that you separated it because I think that the, the other issue is a little bit more complicated. Um, so I am happy to see this moving forward. The only objections I've really heard to this are aesthetic, and that's really a matter of opinion. Um, I happen to think that solar panels look pretty cool. So thank you. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending with 464. You have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Linda Barauer, and I live in the Fifth Ward, very close to downtown. And I just briefly want to express my support for solar panels anywhere and everywhere possible. I don't think we should restrict that. I mean, I think if a homeowner has a choice putting it on a sunny roof or on a front lawn, they should be encouraged to put it on the sunny roof. But if they have nowhere else to get sun except the front lawn or, or in the backyard, I think it should be allowable. We are in a climate emergency and we need to do everything we can. Thank you. Thank you. No more speakers. Thank you. So I'll now read the proposed motion. The motion is an ordinance to amend section 5.16.6 of chapter 55 unified development code of title five of code of the city of ann arbor personal scale solar energy systems Did anybody move the motion oh sorry <laughs> moved by commissioner survey seconded by commissioner mills does anybody want to begin discussion commissioner mills I draw upon my experience on planning commission a lot in my day job, um, but not necessarily topically. It's more kind of procedurally, but this is a topic that I talk about all across the state, um, which is you know zoning associated with renewable energy. And the best practice or kind of the guidance that I give to mostly attack in rural communities and guidance that I give to those rural communities is be consistent. Like I, a lot of people are talking about solar panels and farmland preservation. And I would say, oh, the jury's still out a little bit on that. But if you allow lots of other things in your rural jurisdiction on farmland, if you allow golf courses, why not solar panels? 
this has been the thing <laughs> that I regularly point back to Ann Arbor, this inconsistency in our code, that we would allow someone to build a garage in their front yard and put solar panels on it. They could build a lean-to in their front yard and put solar panels on it, and we don't allow them to just put solar panels in their front yard. We are not consistent in this. I am so glad that we are not just removing, striking that language that makes this us be inconsistent, but actually taking small, some small steps to move towards expanding the opportunities and not holding solar to a higher standard, but in fact, rele releasing kind of some of those standards. Um, in particular, I, like the, I think the, the first one about kind of the rear setback lot coverage limitations um, is one that is interesting because there's a couple of reasons that you would have that rear setback lot limitation. It might be an imperviousness, right? Like when you limit how much area of ground can be covered with all building, um, you're taking that, like you're limiting that imperviousness. And so I think that that's a good move. Sometimes it's just to limit visual clutter. I don't think that, I think that probably in our situation, because of the strength of our stormwater regulations, it's probably the former that we're regulating for. So I think to the extent that you can, like it's solar panels can, are often having things planted underneath them. It's gotta grow in the shade. But um, I think that this is a clear, clearer move in that perspective. So I think that these make a whole lot of sense. I'm super supportive of this. I do have one question for staff though, or thinking about, uh, for uh, Commissioner Dish as this moves on, I hope, to City Council. And that is associated with kind of the stormwater calculation. We don't have purview over what counts towards impervious surface, but our water bills and R do consider that. And I'm curious, um, I would just maybe make the note that maybe we want to consider whether ground-mounted solar panels should count towards impervious surface and increase your stormwater bill? Because I think that they probably ought not. Again, we're not usually paving underneath them. You know, there's, it's, it's usually vegetated ground cover and maybe we could, that could be something that's even in the calculation. That's a little bit harder. You can't just assess that from, you know, aerial imagery, which is my understanding of, of how a lot of that is enforced. Um, has this come up at all, Mr. Leonard? It may have. I don't know the answer to that, but it's something that, at a minimum, we could um, provide that information as this progresses to the city council with that information. Um, if the answer is no, it is, as you say, often it is retained pervious land under those. And if that is the case and that calculus already counts for that, I think that's helpful information for the council. If it doesn't, it could still be added as sort of a, a notation of something that could be considered in the future. Great, thank you. And just to say too, I also looked in the course of doing this, the provision in the UDC ahead of this one is specifically about all solar energy systems. And so that could include things that are not, this is only applies to single and two family residences, but um, uh, installations that are not there which we, when we made the change back in 2017, or maybe it was even sub, maybe it was even between then, we tried to relax it to make it easier to do solar carports. There, um, and so 
I just verified that language all still looks in keeping with kind of the best practices that um, we that you know I talk to communities about on a regular basis. Um, if somebody did want to have a you can add solar panels if you're not increasing imperviousness. This is why I think it probably does actually right now trigger that stormwater calculation. Um, so anyway, I just say like I looked through it. I think that this now puts us not just in compliance with good practice, but helps us incrementally push forward. So I think this is great. Thank you. Now I can't throw Ann Arbor. I won't have to throw Ann Arbor under the bus. You'll probably find something else. <laughs> <laughs> Any other discussion? <laughs> Commissioner Dish. Council Noted. Member Dish. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I had a question then. Um, I wondered if you could just clarify, is there any, would, if this passed, it, would there be any limit toward rear yard coverage with solar? No, uh, currently accessory structures don't have a coverage restriction. They do have consequences when it relates to impervious service calculations and how the city assesses that. We have, we maintain uh, generally across accessory structure that regardless, like, in the rear yard setback, there is a max coverage of 35%. There is no maximum coverage for that space forward between your primary structure and that setback line. Sometimes that is, there isn't space there. Sometimes there is. But in short, no, it wouldn't. It would result in no um, maximum calculation. It would provide ultimate flexibility for somebody to use their rear yard for solar capacity. There's a three-foot setback from the property line, is Sorry, that right? Yeah, three-foot setbacks would still be required for accessory structure. That that would still apply as well. And for the side setback? Three-foot for rear and side. For rear and side, okay. But otherwise, you could cover your entire rear yard. That's correct. Okay. Any other comments? All right. Mr. Leonard, it looks like we're ready for a vote. Deputy Planning Manager Kelly, please give the roll call vote. I love saying that. Um, okay, uh, bear with me. Uh, so, uh, the motion uh, made by Commissioner Sovey and seconded by Commissioner Mills is to be voted on as approved as presented. Um, Commissioner Dish? Yes. Commissioner Lee? Yes. Commissioner Clark? Yes. Commissioner Weish? Yes. Uh, Commissioner Abrams? Yes. Commissioner Sauvé? Yes. Commissioner Mills? Yes. Commissioner Hammersmith? Yes. Mo uh, that A unanimous votes. The motion passes. Next, uh, that will progress to City Council for consideration. Thank you. So we're moving on now to item 8B on our agenda, amendments to Chapter 55, Unified Development Code, to add a new energy section to Article 4, Development Standards, that would prohibit natural gas connections in all new construction and substantially renovated or expanded buildings. And the staff recommendation here is postponement. Mr. Leonard. 
Thank you. Um, as uh, indicated in the previous item, this has been separated from the previous joint presentation at the previous Planning Commission meeting. Um, similarly, uh, the 2013 Sustainability Framework identifies a series of goals for the city. Uh, improve and increase the use of renewable energy, um, reduce net, net greenhouse gas emissions, and reduce the energy and carbon impact of construction um, while respecting community context. The, um, as you uh, may or may not recall, uh, from the, this is uh, an evolving area uh, across the country. Um, I've shared with you some example ordinances. That was uh, one, of the, one of the requests that um, have been provided. You will see a wide variety of examples. There are many more. Um, those were just um, the communities that I thought would provide some um, divergent examples of how different communities have approached this. Um, as you also recall previously from the presentation, the state is bound by a series of legislative frameworks. Um, zoning is by the Planning Enabling Act and the Zoning Enabling Act. That is, those acts are very focused on the provision of adequate infrastructure, environmental protection, and of course, as a police power, the protection of the public's health, safety, and welfare. Um, you will note from uh, the memorandum that is provided from the Office of Sustainability and Innovations that there is a growing body of evidence about the impact, the health impacts of combustible devices within confined spaces, both in our homes and our businesses. Um, DTE and other utility providers are making great strides to make the source of their power more green. They have working towards targets, as is the city obviously working th towards carbon neutrality goals. Uh, the first iteration of this, uh, despite the inclusion of both electrification and energy efficient buildings on the Planning Commission's work plan, I also want to highlight that we have specifically not included energy efficiency. Um, energy, the energy efficiency of buildings is very strictly regulated by state construction code, and that's the appropriate place for energy efficiency. And that's why, um, despite that there might be opportunities in the future for the Planning Commission to consider this to, the, to measures as it relates to energy efficiency, they could be through incentives, they could through, of course, um, those could parallel through evolutions to the construction code that is adopted, but this is focused on the provision of utilities to development occurring in the city. Uh, the version that was presented to you uh, on November 15th uh, prohibits natural gas connections for new buildings. It provides, it has no impact for existing gas service for existing buildings. It is a, like any zoning change, it is a, it is a prospective change. So that is new development has to abide by that. It also requires the prohibition of natural gas connection, not only to newly constructed development in the city, but to those structures that are significantly uh, added to, where the size increases over the original size, or the renovation is of such a significant um, uh, size relative to the value of the structure that it makes sense to apply those standards to that. The natural gas connection would be prohibited um, unless specifically there is a requirement by either Chapter 100, the construction code, or Chapter 111, the fire prevention code, um, that mandates that a gas connection would be necessary for some reason. The original version uh, of that was presented on November 15th also included a January 1st, 2023 uh, implementation date. With me presenting this to you 
um, with a recommendation for postponement on December 6th, that is, of course, not viable. Um, but I ask you to think about that version in the context of a um, simple date-based switch where it, requirements would it be enacted around a date determined um, period, whatever that date might be determined to be. The reason I'm asking for postponement is because I am um, waffling. I've presented you two ordinances. I've presented you an alternate ordinance tonight that I think is reflective of some of the comments that we have received both at the public hearing on the 15th in writing and subsequent to the original draft. Um, my goal of presenting this concept to you and the original in this discussion is, of course, for you to hear um, the testimony that you will from the public hearing. Oh, we've already provided a lot of written comments on this. And my desire is for the Planning Commission to help me become focused in the product that is most appropriate that you think from a policy discussion. Um, from a legal conversation, I just ventured into that territory and talking about the legislative framework of planning and zoning versus the Building Act. Um, we are in constant communication with our attorney's office. Um, that um, determination, will their review and involvement in this will be um, ongoing. My ask of the Planning Commission is to help advance that conversation uh, for the benefit of the city and specifically the city council as to the appropriate desire of applying the standard to meet the goals identified in the 2013 sustainability framework. Um, to be clear, that means it could be modified from the time it leaves this board, but I ask of you to focus on the goals of the city and how new development, how ideally we would desire new development to help contribute or um, not be adverse to those goals around carbon neutrality. The alternate version that I provided to you um, takes on the implementation date more head on. It is applicability for all new buildings constructed um, but and still retains the same requirements for those structures that are significantly renovated or expanded. However, it provides some very explicit exemptions from that section. Um, the dates identified, again, could be modified, but my intention is twofold. Um, a category of exemptions for buildings that are in process um, for building permit submission, that is building those types of developments or permits that are in the planning stages and are, will very likely receive a building permit issued um, within the first half of 2023 in this circumstance. Um, those would be exempt, recognizing that many of those plans may already be under development. We heard specific comments about the appropriateness and timing of, of implementing this, and I think a more fair horizon is to provide the space because as we find at this table, um, it can be really challenging for a project that has gone through a long evolution to shift um, late, if you will, to a different infrastructure framework and the like. Similarly, site plan projects can have even be on a longer time frame. So this would be exempting any building that is included on an active unexpired site plan uh, approved by the city prior to September 30th of 2023. This is an acknowledgement that there might be more complex projects that take a longer process, a longer run-up process, and might have a more intensive and time-intensive review of the city to determine their compliance with applicable city codes and standards. From some of the other example, um, so those are the two ordinances that I'm presenting. Again, my goal um, for you tonight is to help me find the 
appropriate language and the, the issues or matters that are of import to the Planning Commission so I can present a more refined version of the ordinance for eventual consideration. Um, some of the ex example ordinances across the country that I've shared um, provide a lot of uh, exemptions, um, different and similar at times to the ones being proposed. Oh, sorry, one other change to the alternate is also an explicit uh, exception for a natural gas connection for an emergency backup generator. Um, so I'm sorry, I skipped that. That's another uh, specific exemption from the prohibition on natural gas. Um, that's something I think that has come up in some of the recent developments that we've considered. Um, and so that is also carved out. Other examples of communities that have provided um, uh, natural gas restriction ordinances in some version. Um, sometimes they frequently exempt commercial kitchens, um, restaurant kitchens. Um, some are general in exempting them. Some are specific to only the kitchen portion of those uses. Um, recognizing, I presume, that some of the building code and ventilation standards for those are more difficult to reach from electrification. Um, some ordinances provide a um, a bit of a flexible exemption uh, from the standard if determined by some body. Um, in some cases, that could be determined by a border commission. In some cases, it might be by the building official. Definitely possible to build something like that in, in order for it to be effective. I think it would really need to be accompanied by some administrative policy that helps communicate the expectations of how such exemptions would be considered. Um, some uh, some electrification ordinances exempt different sizes of buildings. Typically, larger buildings require more compliance or more front-end work to try and make sure that they're developed um, in a sustainable way. I think that's reflective of a conversation that's been happening at this table is how that these measures can be implemented or designed into projects at the outset rather than trying to retroactively add them to that. Um, some ordinances have provided exceptions for uh, public um, buildings determined to meet a public interest. Affordable housing has been an exemption in some case, in some um, property, in some cases. And then in some, um, some more, some ordinances that I've included are pretty similar to some of our past measures where they are not actually requirements, they're more incentive based. Um, the city of Pittsburgh um, is probably the um, which I thought was a, um, an interesting model that I've shared, admittedly, half for this discussion, half for the upcoming premiums discussion. Um, although very centered in a, um, a very specific district uh, in their community, they provide a really wide sort of premium scoring system that could be inclusive of electrification and other sustainability aspects. So, um, I've presented two ordinances. The alternate ordinance, I believe, to be closer to a viable, workable ordinance. I'm not saying it's there yet, um, but um, given that there's so much interest in this, I, again, I would, um, I'm hoping that the Planning Commission can help validate that that is or isn't on the right track. Are there other particular aspects of the ordinance you'd like staff to pursue and investigate so that we can provide a more, more fully formed ordinance for your final consideration. Um, depending on the nature of that discussion, um, I would propose what that postponement time frame might look like, um, whether it's something that seems to be relatively quick to put together or something that's going to need a little bit more lead time.
Thank you, Mr. Leonard. We'll now open the public hearing. This is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes um, about the proposal to uh, add a section to Chapter 55, Unified Development Code, regarding building electrification. We will first call on individuals present to address the commission, then remote participants. To speak during this public hearing remotely, press star nine if listening by phone, or use the raise hand feature if viewing through the web link. For phone access, call 877-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 977-6634-1226. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand using the last three digits of your phone number or by name if available for those accessing through the web link. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you more clearly. For either method of participation, please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. Is there anyone present now that would like to speak at this time? You may approach the podium. Thank you for your patience. Second time's a charm. Uh, still Rich Klegman from Northville. And um, I won't recap the sneak preview I gave you earlier, but uh, it, this isn't really, uh, from my perspective, the a merits, but a methods you know, conversation. So I, I wanted to um, draw your attention to the letter uh, you received from the Home Builders Association's uh, corporate counsel, David Pearson from the McClellan and Anderson Law Firm. Uh, and the letter should be in your packets. Um, so there's kind of three main points I just want to bring up. Uh, one, you know, building code requirements are established in our state on a uniform statewide basis. And electrification requirements are clearly a code-related re requirement. So in other words, a proposed code change under the guise of like a zoning ordinance, for example, wouldn't comply with current state law. Um, during hearings on proposed energy changes to Michigan statewide energy code, earlier this year, uh, representatives from your own city's government provided public comment indicating they were there to support requirements uh, because that was the only way to require the city of Ann Arbor uh, to, to obtain what you wanted to accomplish. So the question was, you know, has a recognition or understanding of that change? And, you know, we feel that's a question that the commission should ask staff and legal counsel uh, before proceeding with the vote on any recommendation of this proposal. Uh, third, uh, we want to make sure you're aware uh, that permitting and inspection authority for the enforcement of Michigan's uniform codes are extended by the State Bureau of Construction Codes. And if a local unit of government that proceeds to enforce uh, code requirements that are not part of the Michigan Uniform Codes, it could conceivably lose their code enforcement authority granted to it by the state. Um, and as well, you know, as all the codes that are adopted, they, there is a factor that has to play an effect uh, regarding a seven-year payback. And I don't know if that had been considered in this uh, specific conversation. So uh, in closing, it's... it's not a debate of whether um, the city of Ann Arbor and or the state um, Home Builders Association of Michigan agree on all the provisions, but we should agree at, uh, that the process of addressing those should be part of the state review of the building code. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Randall Whitaker. I'm the business manager of UA Local 190, and I spoke last month on behalf of the members of Local 190 plumbers, pipe fitters, gas distribution, and service technicians of Ann Arbor and Washtenaw County. In regard to this proposed ordinance, I definitely want to applaud the Planning Commission for taking a closer look at the original ordinance and having discussion 
on how to best move forward with the plan that is going to affect many different groups. I would like to offer the Planning Commission a couple points for providing exceptions to this ordinance that I hope you all consider before moving. The first would be an exception for natural gas backup heat and natural gas domestic hot water heaters in buildings that exceed three stories in height. Those heating sources have up to a 97% burn efficiency. And with current energy rates, natural gas for domestic hot water heating and air tempering for areas that require high ventilation rates is about half the cost of full electrification due to the electrical power grids um, being primarily powered by coal or natural gas. Burning power plants which have a 50 to 60 percent burn efficiency. Full electrification of these buildings would just be taking a very small amount of emissions out of Ann Arbor while introducing a large amount of emissions at the power source. And as I've said before, the infrastructure currently just isn't there to support the capacity that would be needed on these types of buildings. I bring this to your attention because full electrification on these types of buildings will not only reduce construction overall in Ann Arbor, but due to a much higher construction cost, it will also raise the cost of living, which is going to conflict with Ann Arbor's goal of providing affordable housing. As I've said before, UA Local 190 certainly is on board um, to work towards carbon neutrality. In fact, we're signed on with A20 along with the electricians, Local 252, uh, for the geothermal grant to decarbonize low-income neighborhoods here in Ann Arbor. I urge the Planning Commission to take time to move this ordinance in a direction that works towards both carbon neutrality and keeping within the affordable housing goals as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Abrams. It's Ken Garber again. Um, yeah, I have great respect for the uh, UAW, uh, UA 190 local and its HVAC service technicians. They're the people who uh, have the professional skills that keep us warm in winter. Um, however, I must take issue with a few statements of Mr. Whitaker's. Um, he states that this ordinance would affect affordability and that there's not enough capacity uh, in the uh, electric grid to handle the change. I think we've seen with recent projects, most recently 1815 North Maple, that um, full electrification is compatible with affordability and the um, six all-electric projects that you've approved to date um, all have grappled with the capacity issue and have come out um, and uh, stated that there is sufficient capacity. And given that these projects will be coming at you piecemeal, gradually, I think that if there is a capacity issue, it can be handled that way as well. Um, also, I disagree that there is an emissions cost to going all-electric. Yes, DTE has a very dirty fuel mix, but uh, by my calculations, um, going electric is actually twice as clean as going with natural gas if you take into account upstream methane and CO2 emissions. Uh, my calculations, you consult the letter I, uh, you have in your packet for me about my calculations. Um, there's a concurring letter also from um, another writer. Um, 
Yeah, so um, we need this ordinance, but not one that allows gas lines for emergency backup generators. This will just add cost. These will be very tight buildings. The state is poised to revise its energy code to include most of the 2021 IECC, so residential builders will need to install continuous external wall foam, insula wall foam insulation. Also, attic insulation goes from R49 to R60, slab depth doubles. Uh, there's a required solar heat gain coefficient for windows and a maximum fenestration U-factor. These buildings should hold their heat. Uh, plus, new all-electric construction should have solar and battery storage. Maybe not enough to run a heat pump, but enough for supplemental heaters to carry through the outage. Um, there should also be no exception for commercial kitchens. More and more restaurants use induction cooking, which is better than gas in cooking precision, air quality, and fire risk. Also, no exception for lab buildings, even with their air exchange requirements. All electric lab buildings now exist using new methods to minimize fume hood operation. The city approved the Sartorius building with gas, but Sartorius said in meetings with the city that it could have gone all electric if designed that way from the ground up. Um, yeah, uh, I guess I'll leave my comments there, except to say that uh, if I have, I don't see the timer, so I'm not sure where I'm at. Six seconds, I'm done. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Is there anybody else present who would like to address the commission? Mr. Leonard, is there anybody remotely? There is. Caller with the phone number ending with 228. You can press star six to unmute your phone. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Awesome. My name is Greg Woodring. I'm the president of Ann Arbor for Public Power, and I'm calling in to full-heartedly support the ban on natural gas and new constructions. I think that it is of the utmost importance that Ann Arbor model what we need to be doing as a society generally in order to stop the climate catastrophe. I don't believe that anyone uh, within the room tonight would disagree that climate crisis, the climate crisis is an existential issue. We uh, simply have to move off of fossil fuels if we are to avert the worst catastrophes of climate change. And the front runners on this type of transition should absolutely be communities like Ann Arbor who are highly educated and have the resources to model these types of things. I believe it's also absolutely necessary that we move forward with this uh, aggressively as possible. I hope that we can avoid as many uh, exceptions or delays in the implementation of this as possibly can be done. While it's certainly true that our electricity is not as clean as it could be, uh, we need to stop accruing the debt that all gas installations create. Every gas installation is a future renovation that needs to be done. We need to start to build our buildings in a way that is going to be uh, conductive to the future of how we are going to have to handle our entire energy system. And so allowing a building to be built with natural gas is simply creating a cost in the future that both in terms of the lives that the climate crisis will take and the cost of renovating that building later. Uh, Natural gas, the problem with it at the end of the day is that it has to be fracked out of the ground. 
if you are going to have a natural gas connection, you are going to need to continued extraction. Uh, any discussions about energy efficiency or where the emissions are coming from is missing the forest for the trees. We need to shut off this connection so that when we are on 100% renewable power, we're not going to be continuing to emit carbon dioxide and methane due to fracking. Thank you so much. Thank you. Virginia Rogers, you can unmute and address the Planning Commission for three minutes. Hi there, thank you so much. My name is Jenny Rogers. I live at 1332 White Street in Ann Arbor. Um, and I would like to speak for myself and on behalf of the Ann Arbor Chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. It's an organization dedicated to enacting meaningful climate policy with over a thousand members locally. And I'd like to express our very strong support for the proposed update to zoning code to disallow natural gas connections in new developments and major renovations. We really applaud your efforts to reduce local emissions and speed the deployment of renewable energy. Um, I just want to emphasize a couple of points uh, that were included in our written communication, which I know you received. Um, our city's bold carbon neutrality plan won't be successful if we continue to build new natural gas infrastructure which will lock us into those emissions for 15 to 20 years or more. Our goal is to be carbon neutral by 2030, and that's just seven years from now. Um, strategy two of the A20 plan, which was unanimously adopted, is switch our appliances and vehicles from gasoline, diesel, propane, coal, and natural gas to electric. Uh, heat pumps are highly efficient and effective, and according to many studies, uh, we will reduce emissions by moving heat pumps now, even while our electricity is in large part produced by burning fossil fuels. And as Ken Garber mentioned, that's partly due to um, the leakage of methane and the longer um, or the higher impact that methane has on climate change. And besides this, our electricity continues to become greener. Those emissions will just continue to decrease over time. So we encourage you to adopt one of the proposed amendments and to continue looking for creative ways to ensure that our buildings are highly efficient and low carbon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Caller with the phone number ending with 464. You can, you can address the Planning Commission for three minutes. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, this is uh, Linda Brower again, um, Fifth Ward near downtown resident. Um, I'm very much in support of this. I am going under the assumption that this is only applying to new construction or very major rehabilitations. I am very supportive of it. I'm looking forward to the discussion you're going to have because it's a very complex subject. I am concerned with the alternate resolution that kicks the can down for like nine months. Um, I believe the exceptions in the alternate resolution saying it's not going to apply to any projects that have grading or building permits prior to next July or any, build, any site, site plans that have been approved prior to next September. 
I don't know about that. I think you really need to look at that carefully. Seems to me that it's kicking it down the down the road. I think you need to have a cutoff, and I think it should be, um, you know, if they don't have the grading permits or the building permits or the site plans right now, it's got to be the cutoff is right now. You know, not not nine months down down the line. I know you're going to get lobbied by all the developers and all these people, but I, I think you need to resist that. And if you can't resist that. I have an idea, and I got the idea from looking at um, Mr. Leonard had included some sample scenarios from other communities, and the Berkeley, I think it was Berkeley, you know, they, they have a very stringent rule, but it said somewhere in there, it said, in any case, in any case, newly constructed buildings shall be required at minimum to have sufficient electric capacity wiring and conduit to facilitate future full building electrification. So if you're going to put the, these um, exemptions in there, include that, and then it will be up to, up to the developer. If they want to put the electrical infrastructure in so it can be converted later, plus the current gas, probably not a very smart idea in terms of cost, but if that's what they want to do, that's their only, only out. We cannot be building new things that aren't ready for electric. You know, we need to look forward, and I have, that repeatedly at your meetings and at city council when council member Dish and others say we have to approve this development because our hands are tied because our building code doesn't require electrification. Well, now's your chance to change that. And if you don't, you know, really shame on you. Um, I'm looking forward to your discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Adam Jaskevich, you have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Hi, Adam Jaskevich here, 1430 Las Vegas Drive in the fourth ward. Um, I'm, I'm generally supportive of this. Um, I, I do have some reservations around, um, around some of the, the issues with building code and all of that and whether or not this is something we can require in zoning. Um, I, I do think we're kind of at a point where a lot of these um, technologies are just now reaching the point where they're viable in our in our climate um, economically, um, and it, it just it gets a little bit. Um, but we're kind of on the edge, right, um, with with some of these technology, and I think we need to make sure that um, we we are absolutely in a climate emergency we're also in a housing crisis we need to make sure that we're not impacting our other goals um, additionally um, there's the issue of transportation right and if we end up putting something in place that's going to stymie development of housing within the city of ann arbor um, that allows people to live close to their jobs then they're going to drive further and that's going to cause further um, climate problems. So there, there's a lot of different things that need to be balanced with this. And I just think that we should be, um, we should be careful, we should be aggressive, and we should really try to um, solve our, um, our problems with the climate crisis with this. Um, but there's a lot of other pieces to the puzzle that we should be careful not to 
um, another turn of phrase here, but not not cause other problems with this. But I'm generally supportive of the direction that this is taking. Thank you. Thank you. Call it with the phone number ending with 245. You can press star six to unmute your phone and address the Planning Commission for three minutes. Caller with the phone number ending with 245. Press star six to unmute your phone. There you go. You have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good evening, Planning Commissioners and all listeners. I'm Kathleen Murphy. I live at 315 Linda Vista Street in Ann Arbor. That's in Ward 5. I'm very concerned about the climate crisis. I believe it is important to reduce the use of fossil fuels in any way we can. Banning the use of fossil fuels in new home construction seems like a necessary step to take if we're concerned about reaching the net zero carbon goal of the city. Houses built now, if they aren't electrified, would give the city a commitment to fossil fuels throughout this century. It would be a very bold step to require new housing to be electrified, but it seems like a necessary step if we want to show the use, slow the use of fossil fuels and implement our own goals for addressing climate crisis. It seems imperative that we pass this policy so we won't have to retrofit new homes to electricity in the future. I urge the Planning Commission to pass this policy as we all seek ways to address the climate crisis. This would be a tremendous step forward in our struggle to bring our actions in line with our long-term climate goals. It's all about concern for the future, for having a future that can sustain all life on Earth. Thank you. Thank you. Adam Goodman, you have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Adam Goodman? Mr. Goodman? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. You have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. All right. Great, thank you. Um, Adam Goodman, 400 Virginia Avenue, uh, over in the Fifth Ward. Um, you know, I think I have similar thoughts to a couple of the other, the last few callers. I broadly speaking think this is a good idea, and, and, and in fact, I think that it is necessary and inevitable that we must somehow figure out how to put a policy like this in place. Um, my, my concern is about, you know, sort of timing and uh, basically I'm worried that we might make the perfect the enemy of the, the good, at least in the short term. And uh, actually <laughs> end up, you know, not necessarily within the city of Ann Arbor, but but in, in sort of totality and holistic terms have be, be creating more emissions rather than less. And, and the reason I say this is, you know, that we know that dense um, 
car light housing built within the city of Ann Arbor, close to where people work, is more sustainable and creates less of a carbon impact than building new sprawl developments, you know, 20 miles away from town that people have to drive the cars into town to, to get to. So if, if these rules end up making it sort of prohibitive for, for developers to build the kind of housing in the city that we want, I think that would be a bad outcome. Um, so that that's the one thing I want to be a little bit cautious about. Um, there's, you know, a, a couple ideas that have, you know, one one previous caller said, hey, at least require the developers to include the right wiring so that electric could be added later. I, I that that sounds like something worth considering. Um, another idea would be maybe we should um, phase this in over time to. Uh, you know, maybe start with requiring this for smaller structures like single family homes first, because they are generally less energy efficient otherwise than than larger built, you know, apartment buildings. And and I think the, the HVAC systems are simpler. It's e probably easier to just install a, an air source heat pump and go with it. So, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I trust you all to figure out the right path forward on this. Um, and I'm excited to hear the conversation. I, I just, you know, 30 months seconds. Yeah. Let's uh, make sure that we're actually getting the outcome from this that we want. Thank you. Thank you. No other speakers indicated. Thank you, Mr. Leonard. I'll now read the proposed motion. The motion reads an ordinance to add sections 5.27 to 5.29 to Chapter 55 Unified Development Code of Title V of Code of the City of Ann Arbor Electrification. Does anybody want to move? <laughs> move by Commissioner Lee, seconded by Commissioner Dish. We're now in discussion. Commissioner Dish. Thank you. I have a lot to say, and so I will try to be really brief and succinct. Um, I want to begin by reaffirming something that Mr. Leonard said because there has been confusion around this. This ordinance would not affect existing homes or multi-unit, single-family, whatever, unless there were a major renovation. I'd like to address one thing that was raised in the letters. One letter writer asked if we could prevent condo boards and HOAs from reinventing, uh, from uh, preventing, excuse me, installation of heat pumps. As far as I know, I don't think that we can legally do that, but I am not a lawyer. So uh, I would love to have clarification on that, or possibly Mr. Leonard already knows. That we are in a climate emergency is undeniable. We are also, as Mr. Jaskevich and Mr. Goodman stated, in a housing crisis. And moreover, as Mr. Jaskevich spelled out very well, the two are linked. The housing crisis contributes to the climate emergency due to the emissions that are generated due to commuting. As of October 2022, the median home price in Ann Arbor was $420,000. That's the median home price. That is up 15.8% since last year. So housing prices are rising way faster than wages are. This is not a situation where the answer is obvious and those who don't see the right answer are, uh, should be ashamed of themselves. 
This is a situation of trade-offs. The question is what trade-offs are we willing to make? Are we willing to trade off electrification for our uh, greater density and affordability goals? Or are we willing to trade off those goals with respect to housing for electrification? Some of the callers tonight are not willing to trade off our density goals for electrification if that is a necessary trade-off. Uh, I know I'm going fast and so I sound less coherent than I wish I were. But for me, the issue of trade-offs is linked to an empirical question that I think is difficult to answer. And that is, what trade-offs do we have to make by virtue of what may be technically infeasible at present and possibly for some years going forward? So it's not that we will never see any dense housing along transit corridors, which we are trying to make possible, but it's that we may have to wait five years or possibly longer. But let's just say five and be optimistic. So I have some questions that I, I don't think that there is an easy way to resolve this with a scientific study because there are probably conflicting ones. But it is very helpful to see the ordinances that Mr. Leonard brought, the sample ordinances that Mr. Leonard brought before us, um, which are from not only from California, but also New York and Pittsburgh, which are, have climates closer to ours. Um, I noticed that in Berkeley, San Francisco, and Oakland, there are exceptions for technical infeasibility. I wonder when they have found technical infeasibility, if it's possible to know that, if they have made that finding. As Mr. Leonard um, noted, there is a public interest exception in the Berkeley ordinance and affordability has been found in the public interest. I'd like to know how specifically that was defined. Is it affordability, i.e. 30 to 60% AMI, or would something like housing built along transit corridor, um, which is not technically affordable, but it is going to be less costly than apartment housing built downtown, would that be, would that be in that in Berkeley? Could it be in it here if we wanted to adopt a similar exemption. Um, I am delighted with all of the data that Mr. Garber provided us about the theoretical Ann Arbor household that is a single family household, not a multi-unit. Uh, our concerns are kicking in when we think about um, multi-story, multi-unit housing. And so that's what I'm asking for. I, I don't think science can help us entirely, but I hope that the examples can. Uh, I think it is a very good idea for us to consider including a um, minimum requirement if we add an infeasibility exception. Required at a minimum to have sufficient electric capacity wiring and conduit to facilitate future full building electrification. I think we've seen that in some of the developments that we have approved that are gas right now. Um, and I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. New York City has a, an exception for emergency or standby power. I'd like to know what the difference is between those two things, because we have heard from a number of folks that a, not just an emergency backup generator, but an actual gas boiler might be necessary as in the case of a catastrophic failure of a uh, geothermal system. And so I'm wondering if that 
if the boiler is a standby and the emergency is a generator, or maybe that distinction doesn't even apply to the thing that I'm thinking about. But, And finally, um, this, is, this falls under the category of, I don't know if anyone can answer this, but I was very much struck by uh, Mr. Garber's pointing out that the upstream costs of gas production are often not included in the calculations we make. Uh, and, and there he's talking about the methane emissions due to fracking. I was equally struck by Mr. Whitaker's pointing out that if we are not providing gas heating uh, in a building, we are displacing emissions from that building to the source of the energy generation, um, given that power plants have a 50 to 60% burning efficiency. Those two claims, again, I don't know if they can be adjudicated. But the question is, how much does what Mr. Garber raises, the unaccounted for methane emissions of fracking, um, offset some of the lower burning efficiency at the power plant versus at the site in the house? I don't know if I put that very well, but I could clarify all of this later in writing at home when I'm calm. Okay. Thank you. Commissioner Lee. Uh, thank you. Um, and Commissioner Dish, um, it's interesting because what I've written down, you almost have said on a very, it's, it's a, what I wrote down really was um, environmental sustainability and climate change, I believe, is one of the largest and most salient problems that we face as a collective, period. Uh, that, that's not for dispute. Um, my thought process has been on this is policy is a set of trade-offs. And I have a concern that in the case of ADUs, we had um, lots of research. And I think actually um, it's incredible how much research, first off, has staff has been able to procure in, in the short time period. So I'm very actually very grateful for that. But um, knowing the ADUs and having read through those case studies was very helpful for me to see what they've done in Portland or California. So um, I'd love to have a better understanding. I'm, I'm concerned that we don't understand the full trade-offs. And so understanding what impacts have happened in Berkeley, California, for example, if they pass this in 2019, what has the fully electrified buildings uh, you know, uh, looked like and how many has been built since that? I mean, it's been three years, so obviously COVID creates a little bit of a time warp. So that's maybe a skewed viewpoint, but getting their experiences and having even a conversation from them would help to better inform uh, this obviously very important discussion. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, and I think uh, it was Kirk Westfall who had written um, that we do want to also look at cities that have similar uh, winter temperatures as well. So that's, that's my only concern about Berkeley. But just looking at the time span, I'd love to see the outcomes of something like this. Um, I also wanted to kind of mention, again, I, th I want to say it was Adam Goodman who had um, spoke towards this, but the, we know also as a fact we have a housing and jobs imbalance. So many people commute into Ann Arbor. SEMCOG, Southeastern Michigan Council of Governments, states that the average commute time is 27 minutes. So if we do uh, pass this, which um, that results in a slowdown of development, which faces significant headwinds, increased interest rates, as well as construction prices, 
um, labor has become more difficult, supply chains are difficult. Uh, that's not to say we shouldn't push. Again, this is, I led this with, this is the most important problem that I think, and most salient problem that we face as a collective. So I wanna have a better understanding of trade-offs, um, which is, again, kind of the framework by which I've begun to try to understand this particular issue. Um, and then I would like an answer on the questions with respect to uh, zoning empowerment. Um, I did note that Massachusetts Attorney General did end up shooting this down. So it seems like one of their cities had passed this and it was struck down at the state level as being outside of zoning power. So what's the likelihood that we push forward something like this and that occurs? So um, I think, again, ideas for consideration. It seems like we've thought about separation of uses, uh, size and scale. Um, we, we heard about uh, anything over three stories. Um, and scale, I think, definitely does make a big difference, as we saw with uh, Doug Selby's development uh, on division. And so, and, and really, it's, it's, it was Kirk's uh, Westfall's comments that I thought I took to heart, which was, what's been the experience, and if, can we even approximate the impact on housing production, resulting rents, and ongoing utility costs, as well as grid resilience? So if we don't have, if we can't answer those trade-off questions or approximate them with um, reasonable, um, probabilistic ranges. I, I suppose I have, um, again, we need to take action simply because there is value in providing clarity when they come to this table. But I have reservations about pushing something forward that doesn't have, uh, when we don't have an understand or a clear understanding of trade-offs. So that, that's kind of where, where I'm at. And so uh, again, I think Commissioner Dish, uh, I'm echoing your comments. Um, in, in that respect. So um, that, that, that's my thoughts at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Survey. So I'm gonna offer up, um, I know we're talking about zoning, but there is a building code and there is a gray line. And at least how I read the gray line is the same way we regulate curb cuts, which is a private development connecting to infrastructure. How do we really, you know, talk about regulating um, connections to infrastructure from private development, if it's a gas line and things like that. Um, but with that, um, what the implications are to it, I have concerns about, I'm working on a project that will come to Planning Commission and I will refuse myself, but I've learned a lot working at a new scale um, for, and we're going full electric. And so I wanna also kind of offer how zoning policy doesn't end there. Zoning policy really impacts uh, building code and then the realization of projects. And so if we make policy and zoning in a silo without considering the building code, uh, the impacts actually trickle over. And even though it looks good on paper in the zoning purview, the building code might conflict and it might not actually enable um, projects to be realized. And so a few things uh, that come to mind is uh, regarding the circuit. Well, we have utility at um, across the city, each substation is at a certain level. Um, the project I'm working at, we've had to pull a new circuit from a new substation because the current substation that the parcel is connected to does not have enough remaining supply to service the increased density. So we're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. 
relative to the substation exchange of the amount of service that we actually have. And it's going to be at some point the first round of developments that's gathered the electricity available triggers the next step, which is upgrading substations. And I have questions about who's going to be responsible for that, what's the lag of getting those upgraded to seeing projects realized, and what stall that does in the pipeline. Um, so upgrading a circuit, uh, I've done this a lot in adaptive reuse, can be forty to $70,000. Uh, pulling a new circuit from a different substation, I'm learning, can be between a quarter and a half a million dollars. Um, so the question then is, what is the cost of upgrading or adding to a substation? And who is going to foot that bill? And based on the demand of development, um, who's going to be first in line to gather the remaining electricity? And then who's going to be impacted by having to, to cover the cost of in upgrading that infrastructure to actually see their projects realized? And so I have concerns because we don't have anything written into here about the uh, responsibility and availability for small projects versus large projects to have access to the electricity that we have in the grid in our city. And so small projects, small developments, say an aplex, may be the one that tips the scales of a substation and has to see the price um, of the increased uh, improvement of the substation. So that's a concern for me. Um, Along with the larger projects, there's a big increase in um, equipment. And so in this project, every floor requires a transformer on the floor for the amount of residential units. And this is um, to the concerns about if power goes down, it doesn't go down across the entire uh, project that you can distribute and meter uh, for life safety standards. Um, but each electrical room is now the size of a studio apartment. These are not meter rooms. Uh, they are the size of an apartment on every floor. Um, to get those transformers on every floor, we need freight elevators uh, to access them. So if your freight elevator is not right next to your electrical room, you also need an eight-foot wide hallway. So the square footage actually committed to being a fully electric building reduces the amount of usable square footage for people um, and allocates that to equipment. And when we talk about FAR calculations, we could lose 5% of our FAR to equipment instead of for people. And that's a big issue. And it's here, when we think about our entire UDC, I see waves of where we really need to investigate uh, the impacts of this and maybe add um, pieces to the FAR that aren't counted right, for this so that we actually maintain a certain amount of FAR for apartments, for small businesses, and these sorts of things. Um, I guess a few other kind of notes, FAR, uh, I really want to see a coordination between the Office of Sustainability and Innovation um, and the Planning Department about a going electric workbook. What does that look like? Like, What are the forms, the contacts at DTE uh, that would be required? So there's a through line, the same way we have a through line about um, submitting a project through the site plan process. I think it would be very helpful to be on our city webpage to explain to everybody pursuing a project what the steps are in the foreground. Because it can take up to a year to engineer and upgrade services before you can actually break ground on a project to connect. The other thing I'd like to see with the Office of Sustainability goes back to the upgrades to the substation and how we might support small projects um, in conditions of significant infrastructure updates. And so I know those aren't within the zoning ordinance, but I think those are kind of two discussion points I want to spend time on before I feel comfortable adopting some sort of ordinance here. Um, 
to the point of how much a building requires in electricity. And if we're saying have enough electricity, even if you're doing other systems along with it, I have concerns about the EV ordinance and EV ready. So EV ready means we have to hold enough electricity in our panel, even if we're not installing chargers. And so we really have phantom power allocated to new development that is now collecting whatever residual power we have in our grid that may never get tapped into with installed charger stations. And so if we actually relieve the amount of electricity required in projects regarding EV, we actually free up some of that electricity to be applied to projects um, to power our mechanical systems. Um, and then lastly, is there a way site plan light fits into this? For adaptive reuse, if you cannot upgrade to a freight elevator for transformers, if you, you really use a lot of your FAR um, to a lot of these movement patterns and things like this, what might site plan light look like as an exception um, for small projects, small additions? I know it's kind of written in for the additions um, and improvements, but in that lens, I also just want to like put it on the table if and when we get to site plan light, um, that I think that there's some alignment with electrification in back there. That's my list. Again, I have it written for an email. Brett. Can I, uh, if I could ask a thank you for the example. Um, could you share with, I guess, both me and the commission the project example you're talking about? How? Am I correct to say that if it were a, ga a mixed fuel development, you would have less floor area allocated to equipment? Yes. You would be in the fifty to seventy thousand dollar range, as opposed to the two hundred and fifty. Because I'm presuming, yes. yep. based on that mixed fuel, you would be adding moving power, not adding a circuit to a substation. Mm -hmm. Okay. The difference in the in the power demands would be supplemented by gas if okay. we were using gas on the project. Okay. Thank you. So, yep. Commissioner Weish. Um, just a couple um, reflections. First, I wanted to um, acknowledge uh, Commissioner Dish's um, acknowledgement of one of the commenters about the uh, condo boards and the homeowners association. I've actually asked this question of the city attorney, but I have not gotten an answer. So I wonder if um, our powers combine, we can get an answer from the city attorney um, on what the restrictions are there, because I feel like if we do pass this ordinance, having HOAs or condo boards be able to circumvent that, I feel like creates an equity in our system. And I'd, I'd like to at, at least know that that is a possibility going into uh, what we would be creating. And would we create some kind of race condition where homeowners might try to create boards or homeowners associations to prevent the implementation of this policy? Uh, so I just wanted to echo that uh, in the opening parts of my comments. I can't speak to any of the details that my colleagues have shared, which I do appreciate. I do want to also acknowledge that um, doing this electrification is also an equity issue. And we haven't talked about the equity that this does. Um, one of the things uh, that I have learned since coming to and sitting at this board is that I want to make my decisions prioritizing uh, the health and the well-being of our community 
as well as the planet that we share. And so when I looked at this text amendment, I realized, oh, this moves us closer uh, to achieving these kinds of goals. Now, what I mean by this is uh, most lower income families suffer today from asthma at higher rates than the national average. It's largely because they live near sources of outdoor air pollution. They live close to roads. They live closer to industrial facilities because that's where the affordable housing is. And in our city in particular, we concentrate our affordable housing because it is economically viable to collect the monies that we receive through our millage and build developments that are all affordable. We do not distribute that uniformly throughout the city. So this electrification is not just about this pie in the sky idea that we're going to solve our climate crisis. It's about real impact on real human beings. Because when you combust gas inside a dwelling, you affect the indoor air quality, which we don't talk about. We don't talk about the impact that that has on the very human lives. Let me give you some numbers, because some people actually research this. It costs $82 billion annually in medical expenses, missed work, missed school days, and ultimately death. And this burden disproportionately falls on the most vulnerable members in our community who are not here to make their voices known because they have to work, they have to take care of their kids, and they may not have the space in their lives to come to this meeting to tell us, hey, doing things that might help us with our health and well-being is something that we would appreciate. So I want to speak up for them. The other thing I want to note is natural gas is now responsible for more greenhouse gas emission than coal. So we continue to hear about DTE's dirty mix, but we don't. And I appreciate Mr. Garber's uh, comments to us around his calculations, just noting that if we today just switched um, completely to electrification, we would reduce by half the emissions. But we don't take into consideration the upstream implications or the leakages that occur when uh, pipes just leak. And, and even in our community where they just leak and leak and leak until someone eventually gets around to replacing those. That has an impact. So as we come into this conversation, I agree. We need to talk about how is this going to impact development? We need to talk about is this going to slow down or make it even more difficult for developers to build in Ann Arbor? We need to understand what the in-kind trade-offs are going to be. I think uh, Commissioner Sauvé's uh, detailed explanation of an actual development and just the carryover is something that needs to come to the conversation. And I am asking that we also consider the human cost of continuing to burn this gas in homes and how it impacts real human beings in our community. Thank you. 
Commissioner Mills. Thank you very much to everyone, but particularly Commissioner Weich. I have like scribbled notes all over, so I'm gonna be less coherent than everybody. And the last thing that I was gonna close with was I'm flipping everything on its head <laughs> because picking up on what you just said is the health implications of this, that that was just as much part of OSI's letter to us as the, as the climate implications of this. And I think just in terms of kind of how, I mean, I'm not a lawyer either, but kind of the legal standing of this, if this is a public health issue, I mean, I think that that's something that we should be taking into consideration, which is among the reasons why it is curious and unsettling to me that in a lot of the other examples, the carve-outs are for like ADUs or manufactured housing, which doesn't make sense, and I would not actually be in support of only holding this to single-family homes. Um, I don't think that that, I think that that per perpetuates this inequity to say, let's put fossil gas in, in multifamily homes, but not single family homes. If, if we're thinking about considering this from the perspective of protecting public health and safety. So I'll just say like that, I, overall in terms of like the way that I'm approaching this, I think that there's a role that needs to be played obviously in the building code and I know that's not what we're talking about here. These things go hand in hand. We need to have this ready. I think like um, we need, this all works better when houses are more efficient, when buildings are more efficient. So I think that these things kind of need to go together um, in the future. And that's why I'm glad that we're talking about this. So, but I think that there is more work, things that we need to pull together to get ready. But I really think, that in our conversations, it ought to be, we also ought to be thinking about the kind of the health side of this and not just the climate side of this. Now I'm gonna go back to my number one rather than number six. So my number one is I, I think that is really, really valuable to what everyone was saying in terms of the cost comparisons to neighbors. Like we regularly hear it's expensive to build in Ann Arbor, right? Compared to neighbors. And we need to know what the impact this is gonna have on those costs, Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, sorry, RMI, formerly known as Rocky Mountain Institute, has done some of this in different markets, but I think taking that study and I would like to know what it is in DT service territory, both in term and this climate. I mean, they had, you know, their findings were a little bit different for Minneapolis um, than what they found in warmer climates, and I think the um, looking into, I, I mean, actually there's a PhD student at SEAS who is one of the authors of RMI study. And so I didn't realize that until tonight, but we can, um, Claire McKenna, we can follow up to see if that's something that is possible or has already been done here. Um, both in terms of the new building costs, but also the long-term operational costs. Like that's, that's a, I think a good model. Because I do think we need to, I don't think that costs ought to drive this entire thing. I think this will further this conversation about how we can make sure that our suite of policies is in line so that it is the preferred option to build your building in Ann Arbor to reduce those um, transportation emissions uh, rather than not to do that. So I think that's one of the things that's really important. Um, Similarly, kind of in this realm of thinking about costs, I don't like this idea of 
I don't, I mean, I, on its face, I like Berkeley's like, in any case, build it. But that's, that's going to make things more expensive if you have to make sure that you have, if you're duplicating systems there, by making sure that you've paid all of the electrical upgrades and you've put in all of the gas infrastructure, like that, that does not seem to me like the thing that we want to do um, from a, a keeping costs low perspective. So I like the idea behind it, but I'm not sure that that's right. And, and we do have... You know, I, I worry about the stranded assets <laughs> effectively associated with putting in infrastructure that we hope to be obsolete relatively soon. So, I mean, I think that we need that's in this in this idea of costs. And then finally, the last I know this is not totally coherent, but um, the last theme that I think I'm thinking about in all of this conversation is surety. So, uh, in terms of the in terms of the two examples that you gave us. The second example, in terms of like letting people know that if we've approved their plans, they can move forward with it and they don't have to totally redesign it, I feel like that's a fairness issue. <laughs> like, I, and so I, I would like to provide some sense of surety to people that we're not going to change the rules of the road. Like, one. But I think that us knowing what we're actually, like us having a strategy, even if it's a phased in strategy over time, but signaling to both developers and to DTE to the point of like, what kind of electrical infrastructure are we going to need is really important. When I, when we had this conversation with DTE a couple of years ago, when we were talking about the EV infrastructure, what they said was, we can plan for it. If we know that this is your policy, we can plan for it. And some of this stuff is built into everybody's bill. Like this is like a rate based kind of thing. So if they know that like there's a that we have policies that are going to require really beefing up our infrastructure, they can plan for it. But when it's kind of piecemeal or when we're signaling different kind of things, that's harder for them to plan for. And so I think I'm really glad that we're having this conversation and I think having it an overall plan policy rather than us pleading with every developer that comes before us and is really like, <laughs> if we have this qualms right now, then it's also kind of weird for us to keep on saying, please electrify your buildings. Like, I mean, I, we, we can't, and I'm saying this to us, and to everybody else that's listening, we can't have it both ways, right? Like, and so this is why I'm really glad that we're taking this on and saying, like, what would this actually look like? Because I think that that's really, really important. So I think that there's more things that can be captured. Um, but I'm, I encourage us to continue moving down this path because I think it's going to be important. Like, we're we're going to want this, these answers. Sometime, like, so I, I, I'm excited that we're having this conversation. Commissioner Hammersmith. Thank you. Um, so piggybacking off of that, um, I, I also think I, I have a bunch of also haphazard comments um, and questions that I want to make, but I don't. I don't, I don't necessarily think that answers to these questions would dissuade me from moving forward with discussing this because I think that we are at a point in time where status quo is just not okay anymore and we need to be bold 
in the things that we're doing and the things that we're asking the development community to do in our city if we really want to meet our climate goals. Um, thank you, Commissioner Weich, for bringing up the health issues and that low-income communities are disproportionately impacted, um, have disproportionately worse health outcomes. Um, you said this way more eloquent than I could, but it was written down on my thing is something that I think isn't pushed and talked about as much. Like we keep, we, we're hearing, you know, the cost burden to affordable housing for all electric because gas is cheaper. And I'll talk about that in a second, but the health impacts are real. And as buildings are built better and tighter, gas stoves, you turn them on, emission, or pollutants are emitted. Already people are more likely to have asthma and we're just exacerbating the problem. So thank you for everything that you said on that, because I agree with you that that's critically important. Um, Mr. Lerner, I think one question that I have is just like the legality of this and like how, how this does, and you don't have, I don't know that you know the answer to this yet, but this is just something that I would want to just understand a little bit better. Like how does this drive with state code? Are we doing something that like could be challenged and then somebody overturns like they did in that community in Massachusetts? Yeah, so it's still being determined. Um, I wouldn't present it, I wouldn't take it this far if we didn't, if there wasn't a possibility, but I wanna be clear, it's not determined. Um, I do believe that a, a significant portion of its appropriate basis in zoning is a health basis. And that's why I think the conversation here about equity and about the actual health of, of spaces is very and extremely relevant to mm -hmm. how that how that looks. Um, but I, I it's a chicken or egg thing. I think part of this is understanding what we think is reasonable in the context of a lot of externality, external factors about, um, as noted in the staff report, and I think it came up here, how does this separate the city as a place to do business than other places? How does that impact housing realization? I, I don't wanna say they're obviously related, legality is obviously important and, and it will be determined, but it will be helpful for us to shape what feels appropriate from a policy director directive so that that question can be more definitively asked, answered, excuse me. Awesome. Um, well, I have you. I'm also curious, and this is probably a question for Dr. Stoltz and OSI, and I don't know, frankly, where, where they are in like the SEU, but it might be interesting if there's any, if they have any sort of thoughts or data or speculation on like how setting up an SEU in Ann Arbor would work with you know, more pressure on an electrical grid? Like, would we actually be in a better situation if the SEU was set up? That evaluation is underway. Like, I know that they're doing a lot of data analysis right now to look at different scenarios in that regard. I don't know if that determination, like the operational impact of that is part of that or not, but um, I will definitely add it to my list. I am guessing that we're heading towards a postponement. So um, that's definitely <laughs> something I can try and answer um, as part of our follow-up. Okay. Um, and then another thing I think would be helpful for me, because I don't have a full, you know, people, a lot of people and a lot of articles and a lot of commentary has been throwing around just numbers on like electric, all electric is more expensive than gas. So it would put more of a burden on um, affordable housing than, you know, if we maintain gas, it would, I don't, it would be great to like have an understanding like what the true costs might be 
And if we can, I've also read things, there was an RMI study that said that gas infrastructure is becoming more expensive to maintain. So like, you know, while electric is more expensive now, potentially in terms of rates, that might not always be the case in the future. So I don't know if there's any analysis that shows, you know, well, all electric is more efficient by 60%. And so, you know, like on its face, it might seem like the kilowatt hours are more expensive, but like in actuality, it's less expensive. This is my hope that this is what our data shows, but. Um, I can do a better job of answering that as well. I, I will tell you that I've been part of some conversations of that. And I don't want to say that there's not data there, but I think that there's also a lot of perspectives on what's the right things to measure and right. incorporate in those costs and what are the not, what are inappropriate things to incorporate in that cost. And I think part of that impacts what those outcomes are. Um, but I think this is a hard one. Yep. I found a study from that Sacramento did that showed that in affordable housing that they electrified their electrical bills went down by I think like $300 but they have lower electric, they have like some of the lowest electricity rates in the country. And then one of the public commenters wrote in that his um, overall energy usage has gone down, but he also is, it's coupled with solar. And so, you know, do we need to look at like how, how would, I mean, this obviously isn't requiring solar, but if solar was part of this equation, while the upfront costs are higher, although now there are these tax incentives that does in theory reduce electrical bills, so it just gets really complicated. And I think it's a fair concern that electric bills in affordable housing could go way up, but I don't, I don't know if that concern is like necessarily a concern down the road due to other factors, if that makes sense. So if there's any way to sort of better understand electric bill costs due to this, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, I, just a couple of anecdotes. I think that's a real factor. Uh, one of the electric, electrified projects that has been approved is a, um, a affordable senior development. And I know part of the conversation at, as part of that financing was um, what is the relative sort of utility costs for those units potentially? Um, how does that fit in towards sort of a comparative portfolio of other projects being evaluated across the state, maybe for those, com those same dollars? So it's, it's definitely a factor. And just I just want to fully acknowledge and say, and by the way, I'm also making it harder for you because energy efficiency, of course, is a big part of that as well. And that's not part of this in part, in large part, because of our state legislative framework. Those are definitely bifurcated. And so that's a huge factor on it as well. So, um, um, but I think what I can do a better job is bringing at least some, some cases and scenarios as some comparisons. But again, I think, um, honestly, you'll find different conclusions on a lot mm -hmm. of that information. Right, right. Okay, I think I have like two to three more things. Can you talk a little bit more about in the option two, the thinking behind the September 2023 giving projects Ooh. time? Because that's like nine months from now. What, if, if we were to approve a project in September 2023, where would they be at right now in the process? Uh, it depends. Um, it could be a project that is been submitted and they are going to go through a significant amount of technical back and forth with the city over some aspect of it. Uh, it could be a project that somebody is doing some pro forma analysis right now on to potentially option or purchase the property in anticipation of a development scenario that is to be presented. Um, my, those were dates that, again, as I explained, a site plan project takes some more um, run up 
and more decisions are not potentially made early in how the infrastructure is going to be provided to that site, what infrastructure is going to be provided to that site. It's not to say that a building permit project couldn't be on a similarly elongated scale, but there is some process savings in that. And so that was my intention, that um, it, I thought it was a very reasonable, um, probably pretty conservative horizon to give yeah. a lot of things that might be in process even today um, to get to a finish line under the rules in place today. I mean, th like right now, that feels very long. I mean, who knows at what point this will actually pass and get, I mean, maybe it's March and then like September actually seems okay. And, and again, those dates, I, I want to be clear, all the dates in these yeah. versions will probably will evolve, but I, I would encourage you to think about them in sort of the, their application now. Do those seem like appropriate triggers to be considering? Yes. And I do think so. I was just questioning the like, why nine months? <laughs> um, this is also just something I was thinking about as you were talking you know, before about providing relief, um, or, or Commissioner Mills was talking about providing relief to projects that have already gone through the process. And this sort of relates back to like process questions and process discussions that we've had. And I'm wondering if there, I mean, I don't know that this would even happen, but if there are projects that once this passes, come back and say, you know what? We want to do this. Like, we want to, can we, is there a way to like fast track them through the permitting process, fast track them through approvals if they want to make a change to go all electric? I think it's just something to think about. And then personally, I would be on board with scrapping the emergency generator as backup. I think that there's other things people can do with solar and batteries rather than put in a gas line and pay almost the same amount of money for an emergency generator. No? I don't know. That's just my. <laughs> Careful when you get to high rise status. There's a whole other level of activations. Okay, so maybe that needs maybe yeah. that needs to be there like there could be a tiered scale. Yeah, you know, if, if you're looking towards that. But maybe it yeah. needs to be like in certain situations that there's like other code reasons. And that is it. Anyone else? Yeah, Commissioner Clark. Yeah, I just wanted to second the interest in what um, bills might look like. And I know this building code um, is a little bit outside our lane, um, but I guess if there was any precautions against um, developers that might be building and not intending to uh, maintain, you know, be the landlord and passing it off to a rental agency, if there's any incentive for them to do things like a continuous building envelope um, and measures to make sure, the, the, again, efficiency, which we touched on earlier, um, just to make sure. I know I'm familiar with like an affordable housing development at Electric, but you know, since they were also going to be the developer and the landlord, that there was a real incentive there to make sure the building was high quality and efficient, and because um, they were going to be paying the uh, electric bills. But if the bills are going to be paid by the tenants, if there's going to be some expensive like um, electric heat resistant or resistance heating once um, it reaches a certain temperature. I'd just be kind of curious to know what temperatures um, those kind of mechanisms might kick in and what the costs would be to the tenants. Um, and just, yeah, that, that would be my, uh, just an interest that, to develop on what we were talking about earlier. Commissioner Weich. Uh, just one more thing. Um, Mr. Leonard, have you, uh, discussed any of this with the Ann Arbor Economic Development Corporation? No. Do you have plans to? Um, we could. 
Um, I, it wasn't my intention, but I think the purview there would be, I know the, the Economic Development Corporation is, I think, evolving sort of their areas of interest since um, traditionally, but we could definitely include some feedback in a presentation to them. I would imagine it would be most focused on how this would impact um, economic development in the city maybe versus the region at large. Sure. Yeah. And and I, I'm thinking of that specifically to Commissioner Sauvé's concerns around who pays for X. And I feel like that could be a place where that there's a bridge in that conversation to say, you know, because this, this is a continuous conversation that we're having. Uh, we're having it here at the table. It's going to be had. It, OSI is having it. City Council is having it. The, eventually, the Economic Development Corporation is going to have it. So this is a continuous conversation. And I think if we are all taking stock of how we are contributing to this conversation around our climate goals, I think that will help because then we will be able to hear from the developers. We will be able to hear from the folks who will say, hey, these are the real dollars that this you know, zoning decision is going to have on this. And then that can go back to city council to say, we want to implement this because this is our policy goal. So where do we find the funding to ensure that we can have sustainable development so that we're not you know, sort of depending on the generosity of developers that we're actually building a through line all the way through for what we want to see happen. And I know we have our side of the table, and I appreciate Commissioner Sauvé's um, path forward for us, thinking about curb cuts into traffic infrastructure, which we don't uh, regulate, but we control those curb cuts. So this is a nice way for us to say, hey, our, you know, our responsibility goes up to this point but we now need to connect with you so that this works for a developer. Because I think what we want is sustainable development in our community. We want to be able to house folks who need housing, and we want to uh, do our part in reducing our carbon footprint and emissions with our climate. And I feel like if we can have a more comprehensive conversation, I'm not suggesting meetings, for us and them, but I'm just saying if we can have more comprehensive um, overlap, I feel like we can achieve some of these goals in a, in a more sustainable um, way. Any other comments for discussion? Commissioner Lee. I have an interesting thought from actually one of the comments that Commissioner Hammerschmidt made, uh, Hammerschmidt made about human behavioral economics of consumption is watching your consumption easier if you're only tracking kilowatt hours as opposed to cubic feet. So it's just one of those things when she spoke about, you know, is it, do people's consumption patterns change if it's fully electric? So kind of a, you know, not exactly what we've been talking about, but is there a relationship? Because if, if you are having to bounce back between cubic feet of natural gas and kilowatt hours, um, it may, some people, you know, start to zone. I, I look at my bills and I'm like, okay, yeah, right. I mean, I like to track my kilowatt hours spent, but it's just a question because we grapple a lot with how the human built environment influences behavior. So I'm just asking that question of, 
is there research on if we do just a fully electric building, right? Do you see a noticeable non-random pattern of tracking kilowatt hours rather than having to track two? So if you simplify the dimensional analysis of natural gas and electric, does that have an influence on people paying a little more attention to? So that, that was just a, a kind of a thought, a byproduct of something you had said. So I just wanted to pose that question on the public forum and maybe somebody, you know, does, I'll probably look it up, but uh, kind of, just posing the question, does simplifying dimensional analysis of electrification have a positive influence on people's attention on consumption? So just throwing that out there, thanks. Commissioner Mills. A very quick thing, but this maybe is the action item or an actionable next thing, is that there is the, the PhD student that I mentioned before, Claire McKenna, and Parth Vaishnav and some others are working on um, on understanding one of the ways that, that electrification of heating systems can pay for themselves faster, and, and this, this is some of RMI's work too, is like demand response. So like shifting kind of how you're billed from the utility so that it's, you're not turning on your kind of heat during the most expensive times when everybody is turning it on. Some of their work is like, does this lead to perverse outcomes in, for people that are particularly price conscious for lower income residents and like are they making unhealthy choices because it makes such a big difference um, in terms, you know, kind of moving to that system. And so I'm just thinking that it, they, there's a lot of active research in this particular space at the university, like right here. Um, that it might be really useful to bring it like for a working session or something because I think a lot of the questions that we have or like who to ask may well, like they may be able to point us immediately to. Okay, um, any other comments? I mean, I have m many of the same <laughs> questions, concerns, um, interests, worries uh, that you all do. Um, I have a really silly small question, which is um, wh when do site plans expire? Three years after approval. So. So under this language, a site plan approved in September of 2023 would have till September of 2026 to construct under that approved plan with a mixed fuel option. Okay. And that would primarily be for complex projects which are phased, is that right? Yep, or just sizable. Um. Right, okay. Um, I mean, I, I, I appreciate, I'm, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to have this conversation because there are clearly so many things that we need to work out. Um, and I guess I'm a little, I'd be curious to know how you imagine this process proceeds and how we might begin to answer some of these questions. It doesn't, to me at least, seem like we're going to reconvene at the next meeting with an amended ordinance and vote. It seems like there needs to be more it Sounds like we're ready to go tonight, right? Yeah. <laughs> no? Okay. No, um, thank you for asking that, uh, Chair Abrams. Um, here is my recommendation. I have a pretty sizable research list um, that 
Mix Kelly has also um, probably done a better job not notating some of that as well. Um, I would propose that you postpone consideration of this to the March 7th planning regular planning commission meeting. That's going, just to be clear, that's going to move the ordinance to March 7th with a public hearing. I would also like to suggest that we have a romantic working session on February 14th <laughs> devoted to electrification. Um, where um, we will endeavor to answer all these. Maybe we can decide about bringing in some, um, some other uh, resources and the like. Um, and I, it is conceivable that between that and March 7th, there are still some outstanding things. If that's the case, we, will, um, we can postpone again. Um, but that's sort of my thought about a healthy balance of providing some space for you as the full commission to explore some of these questions us to bring you some more answers the best we can and um, still keep consideration of this moving forward on some calendar. Is the January working session agenda already full? It is not, but if particularly if we're going to bring in any other resources and I am, I am just frankly giving me and my team a little bit more space to pursue some of these questions that may be difficult over the holiday season to, to wrap up, if, particularly for reaching out to some other communities and the like. That seems fair. I just want to yeah. underline the urgency that I think we all feel to, to, to take action in some way or another. Um, and then, oh, and speak, one thing I just wanted to maybe put, one small point I wanted to make about the example ordinances is that all of those cities in California have extreme housing crises. And so they must have, it would be great to, to know more about the impact this has had. Um, and I would, ima I would imagine that Berkeley would not have pursued this in 2019 if it ground to a halt all development of housing in their community because they're desperate. Um, but they also have a different program for building affordable housing and I mean it's just a totally different ecosystem so it'd be interesting to learn from that for sure. Yeah and to be clear the research I provided you so far is just from search research researching codes um, some other summaries but we're happy to follow up and try to get a little bit more detail about what their experience has been. Great thank you. So if that sounds good um, despite the motion on the table a new motion to postpone this item to March 7th could be considered. That could be done by a voice vote. Does anybody want to make a motion? Moved by Commissioner Weish, seconded by Commissioner Sauvet. All in favor, sorry. I, I zoned out for a minute there. Oh, all in favor. <laughs> it's my first time. Uh, all in favor say aye or raise your hand. The motion carries. All right. And then, again, separate for that, for those interested in listening, um, I do anticipate a working session on this for February 14th as well. And I guess we didn't explicitly say the motion is to postpone to a date certain of March 7th. That's for consideration of the actual ordinance. To, yeah. It yeah. was a motion to postpone to March 7th. But again, um, the February 7th, um, that will be, we anticipate this topic on that work session. 14th. The February 14th, sorry. <laughs> But you're all going to have to sign a birthday card for my daughter's birthday that evening. We would be happy to. If we get to eat some cake. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll bring some cake. Um, 
Okay, then we will move on to item nine, other business. We have one item in other business this evening, and that is the approval of the 2023 City Planning Commission meeting schedules. Yes, uh, just as indicated, you've got the, both the Planning Commission meeting schedule. I've also included the uh, Ordinance Revisions Committee. Um, sometimes the Ordinance Revisions Committee is done at that committee, but since all of you are here, and I don't know that we will end up with a fourth Tuesday in December yet or not, um, our intention was to adopt both of those so we can get those scheduled, get them in Legistar. Um, we've noted some of the exceptions based on holidays. Um, as always, appreciate your um, flexibility as we, if we need to take amendments over the course of the year because circumstances change. But um, you should see those reflected March 7th and February 14th dates at least that I just referenced. Is and that could be a voice vote uh, as well. Is this a motion? Somebody makes a motion to approve. Does anybody want to make a motion to approve our 2023 meeting schedule? Moved by Commissioner Weiss, seconded by Commissioner Dish. Is there any discussion on the motion? Commissioner Dish. Um, I'm, this is a probably unnecessary thing to say, but if we approve this, it will be my fervent hope that we will find no significant business to do on July 5th. Let's keep it there and keep holiday plans aware. <laughs> Any other items for discussion? All right, we're ready for a vote. You said we can do a voice vote. All right, all in favor, please say aye or raise your hand. The motion carries. We are on to item 10, public comment. So this is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes about any issue not listed as a public hearing on this agenda. Any issue. Is that true? Yeah, so, okay, issue, sorry. sorry. Any issue at all. We will first call on individuals present to address the commission, then remote participants to speak during this public hearing remotely. Press star nine if listening by phone or use the raise hand feature if viewing through the web link. For phone access, call 877-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 977-6634-1226. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand using the last three digits of your phone number or by name if available for those accessing through the web link. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you clearly. For either method of participation, please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. Is there anyone present that would like to speak at this time? Thank you, Commissioner Abrams. Ken Garber again. Um, yeah, just some random observations. First of all, thank you for the, the excellent discussion of this issue. Uh, I'm impressed by the breadth of your uh, experience and expertise, and uh, appreciate everyone's comments. Um, yeah, I'm really awed. Uh, uh, to Commissioner Lee's uh, observation that uh, the Massachusetts AGN validated the Brookline uh, ordinance, uh, zoning ordinance, yeah, that's correct. Um, but my understanding is that that did lead to a statewide pilot project on mandatory electrification in numerous communities there. I don't know much more about it, but um, I think that's worth looking into. I think that that ordinance did have a positive outcome. Um, to Commissioner Hammersmith's up, um, 
uh, mentioning uh, the SEU and how that might relieve some of the pressure on the grid and capacity. I think there's a movement towards more distributed generation in general with a new Democratic majority of the state um, House and Senate. We might see uh, effective legalization of community solar, maybe lifting the 1% cap on distributed generation, uh, improving the outflow, credit, other things that will, that will incentivize more solar and that could um, relieve some of the pressure on the grid. Um, on the emissions impact of uh, electric versus gas, um, just to clarify my calculations, uh, OSI has done the electric calculation for us. Uh, Thea Jagelaner, as part, of, as part of the annual greenhouse gas um, inventory, does that, and it takes into account the 60% efficiency of the coal plants that uh, DTE uses to generate electricity. So, um, you know, I trust OSI's, OSI's figure on that. The gas figure is mine, and it, there are a number of assumptions there, and I lay them out in my letter. Um, I think they're justified. Uh, on utility costs, um, checking my monthly DTE bills, the cost of natural gas for me has risen 48% in the last year to 94 cents per CCF. Meanwhile, the cost of residential electricity has remained exactly the same at 17 cents per kilowatt hour. So um, I did a back of the envelope calculation and to me it looks like electric and gas utility bills are roughly at parity right now. And in fact, electric may be slightly cheaper. Um, you know, that's not definitive, but I think we're close. Um, and on the affordability question, if you're following the, the process at the uh, State Bureau of Construction Codes where they're revising the energy code, as I mentioned earlier, the recent drafts include the 2021 IECC code, which is excellent. These will be very energy efficient buildings that will improve affordability, assuming that that's the final decision of the state. And I would note that the Home Builders Association has legally challenged that. So it's in doubt, um, but you know we can hope that goes forward, and that will be positive too. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else present who would like to speak at this time? Mr. Leonard, is there anybody online? I'm going to give it a pause. Caller with the phone number ending with 464. You have three minutes to address the Planning Commission. Hello, this is Linda Barauer again, um, Fifth Ward near downtown resident. I want to thank you for the discussion um, that you just had about the electrification. Um, it was really good to see so many points raised. And I hope you can come to decision in March because um, we don't want to delay this anymore. But thank you for a great discussion. I want to piggyback on, on the announcement that um, Councilmember Dish made at the beginning of, of, of your meeting tonight, and that is that last night City Council voted to um, send back the TC1 resolution that pertains to the Stadium Maple Corridor. And I want to comment on that because I was at the meetings when you discussed that, and I was very disturbed at your rush to pass it as it was without any tweaking, um, especially because um, Commissioner Shannon Gibberandal actually spoke very eloquently about the concerns she had about um, the narrow sidewalks and the frequency of the curb cuts and how that is really a safety issue and that she encouraged tweaking to it. But then 
those of you, the rest of you really wanted to kind of get it done. And she said, because she realized you were in a hurry to pass it, that she would vote for it. So I was disappointed. I don't think she should have done that. But she felt she had to because three of you were refused because of conflicts of interest. So you needed her vote. So, okay, you passed it. So I also, I spoke at that meeting. And I was disappointed because you really brushed off staff reports and a good segment of the community input in your rush to pass it. So I also spoke at City Council last night, as did many others, and I was very happy that they sent it back to you because that's what I thought they needed to do. And I don't really have a strong opinion on one of their directives, which is um, maybe to include car rentals and auto repair shops. I, I don't really have a strong opinion on that, but I do have a strong opinion on the issue of the front easements considering the sidewalk is so narrow there and there's so many curb cuts. So, I hope you'll look into that very quickly. I know City Council doesn't want you to delay. They want you to do it quickly. And I hope that when you look at the next one, whether it's Washington or Plymouth, that you will take into account other people's ideas and, and input. And if t more tweaking needs to be done more to apply, to apply um, in a very good way to those other quarters, that you will take the time to do that before sending it on to Council and not to rush something that that's important. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is all. Thank you. Moving on to item 10, public, oh no, 11, commission proposed business. Is there any commission proposed business? Commissioner Weish. It's a question uh, which may lead to business. Uh, Mr. Leonard, can I give you a hypothetical and you tell me what the next step of the hypothetical would be? Yeah, it might be a hypothetical response, though. That, I like that. Hypothetically, a planning commissioner wants to look at something that's on our work plan but is not teed up in the upcoming year and wants to work with a small subset of the commission to make a possible recommendation to ORC, what would need to happen? So the Planning Commission can appoint other committees. Um, it sounds to me like it would be the Planning Commission appointing another subcommittee for a particular task. Um, that has happened in the past. It's also happened where commissioners have represented with members of other commissions to work on uh, language and then ultimately present that. Um, typically to Ordinance Revisions Committee for refinement, and then, of course, ultimately to the full planning commission. So if you were intending to, um, it sounds to me like it would be um, some action by the planning commission to anoint a committee, a subcommittee to do that work. And um, part of that would just be some recognition that this is the appropriate time to take it up in the work program. Um, I just want to warn that I'm I'm just going to be continue to be sensitive in the context of uh, TC1 potential amendments now electrification is going to take some research and some time uh, premiums are kicking off we are in the, on the verge of the comprehensive planning process so um, but I would say hypothetically that would be the way to do it I'd be happy to work with you on um, proposed language to present as an action for the Planning Commission but I'd want the commission to sort of have that collective conversation that that's of value to them to elevate. Okay, and uh, in this hypothetical, 
it wouldn't trigger any of the Open Meeting Act because there wouldn't be a quorum of so the, commissioners. Yeah the, yeah, the city council has directed all committees be um, noticed pursuant to the Open Meetings Act. That's why groups like the Ordinance Revisions Committee are uh, publicly noticed, so it would still be a publicly noticed group. Even if it's not a quorum? Yep. Okay. If it's a subcommittee of the Planning Commission. So hypothetically, uh, there that's one path. Is there another path where we wouldn't have to take that? Because I hear your concern around uh, taking staff time away from the work plan that is in place. And I want to respect that and at the same time. Do more. I, effectively, because I, I feel like there is momentum, at, at least from the last conversation that we had about the work plan, I could count uh, you know, very quickly that there were several commissioners who were interested in working on more things than you prioritized. And I felt as The commission if, prioritized, the commission adopts the work plan. Uh, yep, yeah. thank you. And, and I wanted to see if we could get something teed up. So I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to change the work plan, I'm just trying to put stuff in the pipeline so that when an opportunity presented itself, something would be ready and we could just take it up and it's already been sort of drafted, it looks the way that it needs to look and the conversation can just pick up on the work that other commissioners who are willing to put into that could facilitate without overtaxing uh, staff, because we, we definitely want you to stay on track and we know the comp plan is also in the mix, but uh, we feel like, or I feel like there's some low-hanging fruit things that we can continue to work on simultaneously and it doesn't have to be an either or. Yeah, I would, uh, so I would suggest maybe you and I could have a follow-up conversation. I'd, sure. I'd like to understand a little bit more about um, the Absolutely. topics that you're talking I've about. I've already then, sent you some emails, yeah. so you know exactly those, what I'm talking about. That, and that's not small <laughs> tweaks. I didn't say they were small. Oh, okay. I just uh, asked you, uh, okay. hypothetically, how uh, one could do it. Okay. I thought you said low-hanging fruit. It's a very, very large, very large. but low-hanging fruit. They're low because they're so large. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow up with you, Commissioner Weich. Um, yeah. I'd be interested to know the results of that follow-up conversation, maybe at another time. Just curious, yeah. Um, any other commission proposed business? I'm thinking about striking that from future agendas, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone like to make a motion to adjourn? <laughs> by Commissioner Mills, seconded by Commissioner Weich. We are adjourned. Oh no, all those in favor say aye, sorry. Aye.